Hello, everyone. That was a lot louder than I was expecting. <laughs> um, my name is Sarah Savage. I'm a producer here um, at M Pavilion. Um, and firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem of the Bunwurung clan of, as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. And we pay our respects to their land ancestors and their elders, past, present, and to the future. We're here today um, for a lecture by Monique Weber. Um, who's standing behind me. Uh, she's the recipient of the 2017 and 18 uh, State Library of Victoria Latrobe Society Fellowship um, and an honorary fellow, principal instructor and assistant coordinator at the University of Melbourne. Monique's research centres on the reception of visual culture in the contemporary era. And today, um, in a lecture that is actually inspired by the very structure that we're in, uh, Monique is going to be discussing uh, the traditional forms in the contemporary city. And I will leave it to Monique to talk more about what that means. Um, but for now, please give her a very warm welcome. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I'd, to begin with, I'd just like to second the um, acknowledgement of country. And I'd also like to begin just by clarifying the scope of today's talk, because I have a little bit less than an hour so, of course, the traditional custodians of this land were here for tens of thousands of years, and I would not even presume to cover such a rich and complex history in such a short talk. So today I am focusing very much on the post-European settlement of Melbourne. So I'll be looking at the last 200 or so years, looking at that into the contemporary era and asking what it meant in the past and what it means for us today. So when I'm speaking about Melbourne, I'm speaking about it post-settlement, just to make that clear. So as Sarah said, today we are in a space that really did inspire my talk for today. So we are in an ancient amphitheatre. It is an ancient form created by European architects for a contemporary Australian audience. Rem Coolhouse and David Giannotten have specified that they were inspired by the idea of the ancient Greek Agora, now, the Agora is where the ancient Greeks would sit and discuss and decide the future of their cities. And even though that is a concept that is far beyond where we are today, thousands of years removed in terms of culture, geography, history, just by sitting in this space today, we are actually perpetuating that history because we are also sitting here for the next part of this program and as M Pavilion continues to consider what it is that makes our city and what it is that makes it important. So just by sitting here and interacting with this space, we are actually both creating and witnessing how interaction with traditional forms, even if they are foreign forms, can create contemporary culture. What's really important here to keep in mind is that it doesn't really seem to matter if the concept itself is foreign. It doesn't matter if it's an ancient Greek form transplanted into contemporary Australia. What is really important in this translation of ideas is that the local community takes it into their practice. And in doing so, it becomes part of their identity. Now, this is a very broad architectural theory. The idea that if you transplant an idea, it will become relevant. But what I'd like to suggest today is that it is of a special relevance, both here in M Pavilion and of a special relevance to Melbourne. So let's think about the city. Let's think about where we go when we walk through the city, what we see and how we understand it. 
Actually, let's begin with probably the most fundamental aspect of the city, what we actually walk through, its layout, our hodl grid, which has been in the vernacular for nearly 50 years now. Now, we are conventionally taught that when Robert Hoddle came and surveyed Melbourne in 1837, he laid out a grid because that was the most practical way of approaching it. So if we think about it, you have two main boulevards that are centred on an axis. You have one going north-south, which is Swanson Street, and you have one going east-west, which is Collins Street. And then everything else comes out from that in a grid, in a very clear, regular manner. And of course, that still defines our CBD today. Now, if we think about this in terms of context, it makes sense. Robert Hoddle was coming out of a Victorian, as in Victorian period, absolute obsession with regularity. He was a surveyor, and he was looking at what, from European perspective, was a blank canvas. Of course, it wasn't, but from his perspective, it was. So it makes sense. If you're going to make an ideal town, why not go with an ideal practical form? It's definitely important. But what I would like to suggest today is that there is another underlying, more ideological concept going on here. If we look at Robert Hoddle's basic concept of two intersecting axes with grids coming out from them, it is identical to an idealised Roman town plan. When the Romans either created a new city, took over a city, or even developed a city, this was the ideal they would always put in. You would always have a main street going north-south, known as the Cardo, and one going east-west, known as the Decumanus, and everything else flows out from that in a very nice, regular manner. Even if you take over a city, you make it look like this. And the idea of this was that not only was it practical, but it became instantly recognisable as belonging to a wider identity of Rome. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's just an interesting comparison. There are plenty of grid cities all over the world. The Romans might have had it first, and then everyone else had it, and we had it in turn. And if you left it at that, it probably would just be an interesting comparison, particularly for the period we're looking at. But if we think about this a little bit further, if we look beyond just one person, which, of course, makes it more um, centralised, we will see that not only Robert Hoddle but Melbourne's first designers, their innovators, their city council, even the residents continued these ideas. They built on Robert Hoddle's original idea and created Melbourne into a conceptual spoliation of a Roman city. Now, like I said, a Roman city always had Cardo, Decumanus, and a really nice grid section that would come out from that. But that wasn't enough you also had to have very specific buildings and they had to be very specifically sited. And the most important of these were a bathhouse, a forum, theatres and an arena. And all of these were there, just like Robert Hoddle's grid, for very practical reasons. So let's take bathhouses for an immediate example. Most Romans lived in incredibly tall, incredibly small, and tall actually, studio apartments known as insulae. These had no bathing facilities, so obviously bathhouses are very, very important. But you don't want them to be in the centre of the city. They get in the way. So you want to put them on the periphery of a city, usually where you're going to transition to where it becomes more residential, because it's a public amenity. And quite often you want to put them in the north, because as a general rule, there's, Romans just like to have residential areas in the north. 
Let's think about where our Swanston Street baths are located. They are located right at the northern tip of Swanston Street, right where we start transitioning to the suburbs. And they were actually decided to be put there right from the beginning of Robert Hoddle's grid. They are placed exactly where they would have been placed in a Roman street plan. And when this place was reserved, there was no rules in Melbourne as to where they had to put it. So it was a very deliberate decision to put it there. Our forum is exactly the same. Now, a forum is it's a complex space, but it is essentially an area that has public space and civic space, where a government will meet and discuss and decide the future of the city. We don't have a forum. Admittedly, we do now with the M Pavilion. But we do have a town hall. And let's think about where our town hall is situated. It's exactly on the intersection of the Cardo and the Decumanus. It's exactly on the intersection of Swanson Street and Collins Street. Now, when Robert Hoddle made his grid in 1837, land sales began almost immediately, but the government did have the option to put aside very specific areas. And this was one of the very first ones they put down. Again, it's a very deliberate decision to put something there. But of course, a city isn't just theatres, um, isn't just a forum and bathhouses. It also needs recreation. So theatres were an integral part of Roman culture. But they were also seen as something that was quite subversive. They were an area where people could congregate, they could spread very dangerous ideas. Plus, they're quite noisy. So the, they had to be very, very specifically situated. You don't want them in the centre of the city. They're going to make far too much noise, be far too disruptive. People are trying to focus in the forum. So they need to be on the periphery. You don't want them in the north because that's where the bathhouses are. There's already something there. You can't put them in the west because the west is too hot. And you can't put them in the south because the Romans think that bad air comes from the south. So you can't put them there because the idea is that it will get trapped in the area. So they have to go in the east. Nearly every Roman town will put their theatres in the east. Let's think about where our original theatres are. The Princess Theatre, which was originally Astley's Amphitheatre, was placed at the very east end of Melbourne in the 1850s. It was soon followed by the Majesty's Theatre in the 1880s. And even if we think about that term, the idea of an east end being the theatre district, we can see that this is something that has been rolled out across Europe. So again, we are following that idea. Now, if people aren't going to the theatre, they might prefer sport. And again, you need that as well. Again, you don't want it to be too close to the centre. Actually, you want it to be even further away from the centre. If a theatre-going audience is going to be quite volatile, the kind of audience that's going to go and watch gladiators kill themselves is probably going to be worse. So again, it needs to be very much on the periphery. It can't be in the north, because there's bathhouses there. It can't be in the west, because it's still too hot. It still can't be in the south, there's still too much bad air, but the east is being occupied by all the theatres. So you always want to put it in the southeastern corner of a Roman town. It's a bit of a compromise, but it's the best you can do. Let's think about where our MCG is, our very own Colosseum. It is exactly, if you get onto Google Maps, it is exactly on the southeastern corner of the city grid. So, by the 1880s, Melbourne had created, very consciously, an idealised Roman town plan. This wasn't just a few ideas, it wasn't just one person. It was a whole community getting together, 
taking these ideas, living within them, and making them part of their contemporary life and also of their future. And as I said, with the Robert Hoddle grid still defining our city, we've made it part of our future as well. The question we actually have to ask is why? It's not like they thought they were part of the Roman Empire. They were well aware that they weren't. So let's think about this in terms of why you would want to bring all this over. It's a lot of hard work. When you look at the context of the period that we're looking at, 1830s to 1880s, it was very much a period of colonial supremacy and it was also very much a period of classical idealism. So Rome was seen not only as the epitome of a colonial power, but even more so than that, it was seen very much as the epitome of European cultural heritage. When the museum was founded, the Melbourne Museum, in the 1850s, and the National Gallery, which of course is now over there, was, grew out of it in the 1860s, and both were at the public library, which is that way, the first collection wasn't Australian art, it wasn't European art, it was casts of Roman classical sculptures, Roman and Greek, out of all the things they could choose from. And it actually persisted like that until the 1920s. It was very much this idea of copies, of classical ideals. This wasn't just let's share in what everyone else has. It was a much more important ideological transition. Just by their very presence in the city, Classical castes were thought to be representative of a continued Roman heritage, a continued European heritage. So by having them there, they were a physical manifestation of a much less tangible link to a past. Now this continued not only in terms of them being there, but also in the terms of viewing them. So the very act of viewing, the very act of interacting, not with architectural form as we are today, but of interacting with something that is visual was seen to be entering into a relationship. When you looked at a Roman form, you were actually making yourself part of that heritage of the thousands of people who had looked at it in the past. So when you think about this kind of context, the idea of making your very city into a Roman form makes a lot of sense. You don't just have to go into a library to do this. You don't just have to be aware that it's in an isolated part of the city. The very act of walking down the street, of looking at your town hall, of going to the theatre, was to actually practice what you believed was your, your own European heritage. Now, this is obviously incredibly exclusive, and I want to discuss a little bit later why this is so. But as we can see, if we take it just as a theory, it definitely works. We're sitting here today participating in a continuation of a heritage and a continuation of ideas. And as I said, it doesn't matter that they are foreign and perhaps irrelevant in terms of heritage and culture to many of us. Because they are cited here and cited communally, it becomes really important to us. But we're doing this very consciously. This has all sorts of other ideas around it. And of course, it's very abstracted. This is a much more abstracted form rather than a classical cast. That is perhaps why the original classical casts and the original idea of Rome being, of Melbourne being very Roman didn't really last. By the 1920s, Melbourne wasn't interested in these ideas anymore. Particularly, it felt that it was just irrelevant. Melbourne had been inhabiting its own area as a European settlement for nearly 100 years. It had its own identity, it had its own strength. 
it felt it didn't need all of this anymore. So when people like Frank Rinder, who was the Felton Bequest advisor in the 1920s, was given a ridiculous amount of money to go to Europe and buy art for Australia, he just stopped buying old master copies. He said, we don't need them anymore. If we want to create a connection to the past, we need the real thing. And so you would assume that because the images that had been the manifestation of this connection stopped, you would think that the connection on, in the landscape would have to stop. We saw before it was a very intrinsic relationship between the two. It would make sense. If you don't want the images of the past anymore, why would you want to live in the past? Why would you want to perpetuate that in your own living space? But what's really interesting about Melbourne is that it hasn't stopped. It's actually become part of our own heritage. And it's become something that we have really perpetuated. I think the most recent dating, excluding the Embervillian, the Embervillian shows that we're still doing this. The most recent dating I could find of it was 2015, as I'm going to discuss. This has been something that we have taken as our own heritage. So from situating all of this in its original context, in a very colonial, very English, very monocultural idea of we are an extension of a European culture, and also a very culturally exclusive idea. What I really want to show for the rest of this lecture is how we have actually inhabited this heritage and made it our own. I'd also like to question if this is something sustainable for us as we go into the future. So at the beginning of this talk, I talked about the concept of conceptual spolia. Now, spolia, in its original meaning, literally means the spoils of war. And the idea is that you go and you kill your enemy and you take their possessions and you wear them. So maybe you kill the enemy and you take their armor or you defeat a city and you take back the, some of their architecture to ornament your own city. Now, that's the basic idea of it. But what's very interesting about spolia is that it doesn't just mean to take. There is a very implicit understanding that by taking the objects from another culture, you are actually going to be changing your own culture. So today, the use of spolia is quite often used interchangeably with cultural appropriation. To a certain extent, they're similar. To a certain extent, both of them are taking something from an origin culture and adding it to a destination culture. In both instances, the origin culture is missing out. But there is a very, very important difference. And that is that in appropriation, the origin culture loses something and the destination culture just subsumes their objects, subsumes their ideas. They're not really changed. They just amplify their own practices. In spolia, origin culture still misses out. That is unfortunately part of it, until, as we're going to see, it does change. But the implication is that the destination culture, in taking on the imagery or the meaning of another culture, is actually going to be implicitly changed and acknowledges that. So to give a very very old-school example. When Rome conquered Egypt and it brought back things like obelisks, that was a statement to say, we've killed all the Egyptians and we own them, we own their culture. That was ideally what it was. But that also inserted very Egyptian ideology into a very Roman landscape. By making it part of the city, it became part of everyday practice. And it became a platform for actually expanding the city so that Egyptian ideas, Egyptian religion could come in. 
Spolia is not something that we do anymore. But conceptual spolia takes all of this much, one step further. Spolia is not only cultural expansion, but also cultural distinction and definition. Conceptual spolia is when you take not an object, so not attacking the enemy and taking something, in a very specific war-like atmosphere. Conceptual spolia is to take the imagery from something else and to use it in your own context. It was invented in about 40 BCE, and the first use of it was in the form of Augustus, where Augustus took the imagery of caryatids, and these are Greek columns that look like women. They were originally on the Erechtheion of the Parthenon, of the, sorry, of the Acropolis, where the Parthenon is in, in Greece. He took the imagery of that, so recreated them in stone in Rome, and also the imagery of Ammon, who was the Egyptian god, and used them as decoration, not on a temple, not on anything else, on a colonnade. What's really interesting here is this is conceptual spolia. He hasn't actually taken them, they're still in place. He has taken the idea. But it's not just being inserted and being pasted onto the outside. It is being locally produced by local people. It's become part of their history. It's being put into an external period as well, an external part of the city. And by doing this, it does create much more of a dialogue because it is not part of a very warlike atmosphere. He hadn't actually conquered Egypt recently or conquered Greece. This was just taking the ideas. So it actually has the ability to become much more of a platform for new ideas. At the same time, obviously, there's a certain level of superiority going on here. I'm not talking about necessarily people who are the nicest people in the world. But at the same time, you're looking at a period in which you're trying to make a much more cosmopolitan culture, in which Rome is trying to expand, trying to bring people in. And this is really what conceptual spolia can do. Because it, is an, it comes from an origin culture, but is defined by its destination culture. It, they are the ones who create the actual image. They are the ones who live within it and who actually decide what form it's going to take. It is much more about reinterpretations of traditional forms in a much more abstracted manner. And this is really what has made the conceptual spolia of Rome in Melbourne much more pervasive. Apologies, everyone. Hay fever. So, as I mentioned, this is really something that makes it everything intertwined with local traditions. This brings up all sorts of questions of sustainability and also of things being adequate, things even being relevant. But before going into that, I'd like to put this into a slightly more contemporary context in Melbourne. So, as I mentioned, by the 1920s, Melbourne was tired of its conceptual spolia in terms of it being a very clear Roman colonialism. We didn't want that anymore. We wanted our own history. We wanted something a lot more expansive. But what's really interesting is that we actually did continue it. Some of it is very, very literal. The most literal example is definitely the Shrine of Remembrance. So, built in the 1930s, it is a combination of of the forms of antiquity, of the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, of a Karajic monument of Lysocrates, and also of the parts of the Parthenon. So by using that, even using the avenue of the cypress trees, we were recreating, again, Roman forms in, in a new context. But it wasn't just transplanting it. This was eminently relevant to the people. 
We are looking at a culture that was in the interwar period. Melbourne and Australia had been decimated by the First World War. This was an incredibly difficult decision to make and it was also an incredibly socially, politically and very, in a very contemporary way, very charged decision. So by putting this here, they were really making an emphasis on what it was that Melbourne felt it needed going forward. Also, more implicitly, the idea that it actually interacts with the city, very much like the M Pavilion we're in today, as um, Rem Coolhouse and David Giannotten have specified. What is really important about this is that it's partly open to the elements, that it frames the city, that it interacts with it. That was very much what the Shrine of Remembrance was meant to be doing. By placing it at the end of Swanson Street, at the end of Arcado, it interacts with the city. But that in itself is a Roman concept, that you're going to punctuate your, your sight line with something that's really important. So here we can see Melbourne again choosing to perpetuate its own ideas with something from the past. Sometimes it's practicality. We think about the Princess Theatre, as I mentioned, and Her Majesty's Theatre. Then when you add on the, the comedy theatre too, you're recreating that East End. Now this is where things start to get a little bit blurred. Are you placing something at the end of the city, at the East End, because it makes sense? Because it's a Roman idea or because that's where everything else is? Other parts of it have actually grown much more organically. So I mentioned earlier the idea of the forum. And in a Roman forum or even a Greek Acropolis, you have commerce and religion always mixed together. When we first built our um, churches in Melbourne, they were very, very separated. But as the city has grown, they have actually become part of our city as well. If you think about the churches along Collins Street or the ones along Burke Street, we haven't made a conscious decision to separate them. We've kept these ideas together. We've kept it going. The Melbourne Gateway, you always need a gateway to the city. And even if we think about it, looking at ideas that are a lot closer, something like the very end of the other end of Swanson Street. So um, ARM, ARC's architecture, Swanson Square, with the face of William Barrack. Incredibly important building for Melbourne, something to remind us of our own history, and very, very specifically cited to be seen from the shine of remembrance. This is something that is, needs to be dealt with, something that needs to be seen, something that we need to have in our city. If we're going to follow the idea that the city is a space in which you, by physically walking through it, you're physically enacting what your society thinks is important, then we need to incorporate recognition into it. But then, the idea of having a sightline that is punctuated by an image of atrocity is in itself an idea that we have inherited. The column of Marcus Aurelius in Rome, which is now hemmed in by Inner Piazza, you can't really see much further than that, originally was there to punctuate a skyline. In fact, it was there to punctuate a symbol of victory over the barbarians. But it is covered in images of Romans, Rome's enemies definitely being conquered, but being massacred. It is an incredibly, incredibly difficult object to look at. It is there as a reminder of the Romans' history. It's there as a reminder and something that you are going to have to interact with. So we can see the same thing here. So if we look through our architectural history, not only post-settlement, but also in less than the last hundred years, we can see that we have really continued this idea of conceptual spoliation. And conceptual spoliation of a very particular concept. 
the real question we really need to ask ourselves is, is this actually sustainable? And is it authentic? Particularly once you recognize it, once you recognize that this is where our ideas come from, is it something that we can continue going forwards? Um, Rem Koolhaas and David G. Notton the other day were speaking about the life of the city and how there has to be a symbiotic relationship between the city and its people. That as one develops, the other has to develop. They need to coexist. And whether or not we think it is a suitable model, our city is based on the idea that we are going to be interacting with its form and that by walking through it, we are becoming complicit in its ideas. That is the foundation of the city, whether or not we agree with it. Unless we absolutely rip up the pavements, that's what we have. So the question is, is it a sustainable concept and is it still relevant? Now, there's a very, different, very big difference between longevity and sustainability. It certainly has longevity. The huddle grid is nearly 100 years old and we are still very happy to keep it. We've expanded on it, but the idea of that being the CBD, it's certainly still there. And if we look at something like the ARM architecture's Swanson Square with the picture of William Barrack, or if we look at M Pavilion, clearly these ideas are still being used today. They, clearly they have a lot of longevity. But are they actually sustainable? Now, by sustainability, I really want to identify that there are two very different sorts of sustainability in terms of architecture. There is passive sustainability. The idea of this is that it requires very little input from the people who are living within it. That the object or the concept itself will just perpetuate because it is practical, because it's useful, because it's expedient. We could certainly argue that to date, our idea of conceptual spolia has been very passively sustainable. In its early history, it was very, very recognized. This is what we want. We want a Roman town plan. We turned away from it and said, we don't want that anymore. And I think that now you would be very hard pressed if you went around Melbourne with a pad and paper and asked people if they thought they were inheritors of the Roman tradition, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone like you would have been able to in the 1850s. You would also be very hard pressed to find someone if you said to them, do you think that an idealized Roman colonial town plan is the right model for Melbourne moving forward into the, into the 21st century? you'd be pushing it. But as I said, even up to today, we are still using it. It has been very passively sustainable. We have not had to acknowledge that we are living on a Roman town plan to keep it going. Now, the idea of things growing organically, it's nice. It's a nice idea to think that you put down plans for a city and it's going to continue developing. Not really that ideal, though. The idea that maybe that we aren't really engaging with our question. What we really need is we need active sustainability moving forwards. We need to have something where we can acknowledge the meaning of our cities and the meaning of our history and what it's going to mean for us. Whether or not conceptual spoliation of a Roman town plan is going to be the right way for us really goes back to relevance because it's a very conscious decision. So... What does it actually mean, after all of that, after thinking that Robert Hoddle came in looking at Europe with European eyes at the traditional lands of another people and thinking it was a blank canvas and imposing a grid plan? And then a lot of incredibly homesick settlers and refugees and immigrants 
coming to something that, if you think about it, was completely foreign and wanting just a little bit of that taste of home. And so wanting to create something that they recognised from their own schooling, something that they thought would actually connect them to something that felt so, so distant. Then we have our own rejection of this history in the 1920s. This feeling that we... And go back to the cast, most of them were broken. Most of them were broken, kicked out, sold off at auction. A very conscious rejection, almost an iconoclasm of our previous history. But nonetheless, these ideas have persisted and they've become part of our own tradition. The question for us is, is it relevant now? Once we acknowledge it, what does that mean? And should we persist with it? I'll give you thinking time. <laughs> So what does it mean to actually be existing within a conceptual spoliation of a city? To go back to my original definition of it, it means that you are acknowledging that the origin culture has lost something, in a very broad term. You are also acknowledging that yourself, as a destination culture, are gaining their ideals and are now part of a discussion with them. Conceptual spoliation of a Roman town plan is probably the only part of conceptual spoliation where you don't have to feel bad about it because the Romans consciously exported this idea. We're not stealing the idea from a very, very ancient culture. This was part of it. But we are becoming complicit in what it represents. This can be taken in one of two very, very different ways. You can say, well, we're becoming complicit in a culture that is incredibly Eurocentric, it's incredibly colonialist, it's incredibly supremacist. This idea that we're going to come in and we're going to impose our ideas on your town plan, regardless of what they are. It's one way of taking it. You could also take it as being incredibly indicative of a hugely embracing culture, of an idea that, particularly in ancient Rome, it didn't matter where you were from. It didn't matter if you were a northern African peasant like Septimius Severus. It didn't matter if you're a Spanish soldier like Trajan. You could become the emperor. It didn't matter if you were living in a hut in the northern part of England. You could be part of this culture. You are welcome. Come in. Come be part of us. You know, live in our city. Walk down our cardo. Go to our forum. Part of actually acknowledging our own history is, as it always has been in Australia, part of deciding what sort of identity we want to take and how we want to understand it. But it's, like I said, if you look at it on the base of it, we could argue that this is a very irrelevant concept to us. That why would we want this very foreign ideal here in a culture of recognition and a culture of embracing and of multiculturalism? That's certainly one part of it. And like I said, it is ultimately foreign. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, at what point does borrowed culture become your own? If we've been walking down the hodl grid plan for nearly 100 years, is it still a Roman town plan that one person imported? Or is it part of our own history? If we look at something like, I mentioned earlier, DCM's Melbourne Gateway, which is those fabulous yellow and red sort of spikes that you see as you go out or in from Tullamarine, to what extent is that a response to the sighting of Melbourne? Is it a response to Tullamarine? And in its yellow, to what, expen to what um, respect is that a response to Vault? And that idea that Melbourne had this fabulous yellow sculpture. 
certainly very local, but also to what extent is that going back to its history? Is that the idea that the entrance to the city must have a monumental gateway? The further we go into our own history and the further we inhabit our own living areas of the city and the further we inhabit our conceptual spolia, the more localised it becomes. And that's really what is quite exciting about Melbourne, is that it is a representation of how conceptual spolia can become part of a local tradition. I was thinking about this this morning, and I was thinking it's really a question of identity. If we think about the passage of identity, and even the passage of difficulty, it's incredibly relevant to Melbourne and to Australia. We are so proud of our history of immigration and of struggle that it becomes part of it. It becomes part of our own story. And this really is where conceptual spolia fits into our own story as well. It's not just drawing connections between an ancient city and our own. That would be far too simplistic and it's actually far too linear as well. Our own history is very integrated into this idea of building upon concepts and of creating a new tradition that, like I said, we are actually doing today. And what's really important is that this isn't restrictive. It might seem as such, and I think that's something that's really important to think about, if you consider the idea that we are still living in what was essentially an idealised Roman town plan, it seems like an incredibly restrictive concept, that you can't move the theatres because they have to be in the East End. But it doesn't have to be. Going back to that idea of conceptual spolia, what it is that gives it power and what makes it relevant is actually living within it and making conscious decisions about it. We can see that to return again to something like this building here. We have consciously accepted a European ideal of an ancient concept into our contemporary city. We've made it incredibly contemporary. We've made it a forum for us to discuss. And that's really what all of this is about. The other thing we need to realise as well is that it is fragile. Like I mentioned, we don't have a forum. We have a town hall. But part of a forum is a public space, and we do have a city square. We didn't have one for a long time, and people were angry about that from the 1850s, that Melbourne did not have a city square. And if you're new to Melbourne, we don't have one at the moment because there's a train station underneath it. But once we finally got one, we didn't get it until 1966 when the Queen's Arcade was finally demolished. Melbourne definitely completed its idea of a forum. We had the perfect forum. We had our town hall to make decisions in. We had our city square where the people themselves could reflect on those decisions. With the sculpture of Burke and Wills, we even had the images of the ancestors that we could consider. But this is fragile. When something is inherently borrowed, by living within it, you do make it your own and you do make it strong. But it still retains that concept of being taken from somewhere else, which is where we get back to authenticity and sustainability. And it can be broken. We don't have a civic square at the moment. We won't have one for five years. And when it is brought back to us, it's going to have a new function. It's going to be not only a civic square, but also the opening to a train station. This is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something that we need to keep in mind. We need to be aware that we need to actually inhabit our own ideas. We need to make conscious decisions as a community as to what it is we want our city to be. Because in conceptual spolia, these abstracted forms take on a new, very site-specific meaning.
And it's only by inhabiting them that they actually take on their purpose. If you think about it, the Princess Theatre, when it was first placed at the east end of Melbourne, was just an isolated theatre. Just that happened to be down there. Once you get Her Majesty's Theatre and the, and the Comedy Theatre, it's not just a leftover of Roman ideals that because of bad winds from the south, you have to put something in the east. It actually becomes Melbourne's east end. So moving forward as a city, we need to really be aware of our past. We need to accept both its positive and its negative aspects. We need to be aware of how our city causes us to enact our triumphs and also how it causes us to enact the terrible atrocities that have, been, um, that have occurred here. And by places such as this, where we continue to live within our traditional forms and we continue to question what it is that we actually mean, is how we will move forward. Thank you. Are there any questions? Well, I know they're, they're a bit surprising, aren't they? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that because I can talk about the later history of Rome. Um, the grid of Rome in Melbourne is unfortunately for the Romans not ideal. We still have the main city. If any of you have been to Rome, the main city of Via del Corso has been there since Rome itself was founded. But it no longer has its intersecting decumanus. So the reason for that is that post-Renaissance um, period, Sixtus V redesigned the cityscape. So originally, it would have been very, very similar to Melbourne's own street plan, but it has been developed since then. And that, again, is something that we need to make a conscious decision about with our own city. In terms of the Tiber, it is actually um, put on a longitudinal axis to be very parallel to the Tiber. And going back to Hoddle, Hoddle did exactly the same thing. And that's, again, where the idea of practicality and reference really comes in, is Hoddle making... Um, aligning Melbourne with the Yarra because it makes sense. It does make sense. But in doing so, is he even implicitly also making us part even more emphatically of that tradition? I hope that answers your question. Thank you so much for your talk. You're welcome. I can definitely talk about the gardens. My research project at the um, State Library is about the gardens of Melbourne, so I will happily talk about that. Um, in terms of the grid, the big issue that we had with Robert Hoddle was he got a little bit overexcited with the idea of a perfect grid and didn't give us a city square because it didn't fit and also didn't give us any gardens. And what's really interesting about this, if we continue the model of the conceptual spolia, is that is incredibly inauthentic. Romans themselves always had gardens within the city because it's incredibly important for them. So the siting of our gardens is really a very localised tradition of having them so close to the city centre but not within it. The only other um, countries at the time who were situating their gardens in a similar area was actually New York. So it... Not sure the country, city. So it is a very new world, I suppose, if you're going to go with the idea of Europe. It's a very new world approach. But... 
that was actually something that the early settlers of Melbourne, the early history of Melbourne, found incredibly confronting because it didn't fit. It wasn't what they were expecting. They had everything else. They had theatres, they had a forum, they had a bathhouse. So my personal project at the State Library of Victoria is to discover all the classical sculptures that were originally in the gardens. I mentioned that they were originally part of the museum's collection, but the Fitzroy Gardens were originally full of more than 100 classical casts of sculptures that were dotted through to try and bring the city more in line with what it was meant to be. And then that was in that period of the 1930s, it was that conscious rejection. And it really brings up very interesting questions. If you think that something is created with a very clear intent, or even recreated by putting the sculptures in there to try and bring it back, once you take that away, what are you actually left with? Are you left with a much more authentic reflection of your own city? Or are you left with a shadow of what you originally had? Thank you. I, I thought I'd hold myself back. I could talk about the gardens for hours, but I'll hold myself back about that. You're welcome to read my book when it comes out. <laughs> Any other questions? I would love to. It'll be finished next year. That's a really interesting question. And I think with any cultural interaction, the real question is to take it back to the people. Even when we look at the first settlers who came here, even for them, I think it's very easy to say, well, they were Europeans, this was a European ideal. Most of them weren't coming from, none of them were Italian. So they weren't coming from a Roman heritage. So they were actually consciously importing something that was to themselves foreign, but that they found personally relevant. They found some sort of connection with it. So I think that one of the most important things for Melbourne moving forwards is consultation. So to say, like I said, even with a Roman town plan, you can take it one of two, of, one of, um, two very, very different ways. You can see it as colonial superiority, or you can see it as a very expansive culture. Because the Romans, unlike everyone else, didn't go in and kill everyone. They would offer to you, would you like to be part of our city? So I think that with the Wurundjeri people, it definitely is a story that needs to be told, like so many of the stories of Melbourne that have not been told yet. And the real question is just to ask the people. I think that, to be perfectly honest, I think the Roman town plan would have been confronting for a lot of people. If we think about particularly after the Second World War, you had a lot of people, my own family as well, came out here as refugees to try and get away from something. And you are being hit slap bang in the face with a reminder of what you have just left. For the Wurundjeri people, you're reminded of people who have, been, who have taken it from you. And the unfortunate thing about, making, about conceptual spolia and making it part of the city is you are forced. You can't go off the grid. You can't... Suppose technically you could walk through David Jones. That's about as far as you could go. So, yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think it's something we really need to address. And that's why I suppose I raised more questions today than I actually answered because I really feel this is something that as a community we need to discuss. Right. Um, I know. <laughs> Mm. The same process in Melbourne. Mm. 
I agree completely. And that's why I think it's really important. A lot of people are now referring to this as appropriation. And as you said, that does assume that both are relatively static. It also assumes that if you take something into your own culture, that your own culture is not going to be changed. And as I hope I've shown today, it's actually something that you've inhabited. I would love to expand this study further. I think to compare it to Europe, I'm going back. Maybe it's something to keep, give me something to do. Thank you. Any other questions? <laughs>